All right, open your Bibles to Psalm 149, Psalm 149, and we are going to cover 149 and 150 this evening. And it's a call to worship, a call to worship. And uh, the last five books of the book of Psalms have been really uh, worship psalms. This psalm in particular, Psalm 149, is an enthusiastic call to praise God. And it was used by the army of Israel as well as by the people in their worship of God. And the structure is as follows. First, in verse 1, there's a call for a new song of praise. Second, in verses 2 through 5, is a call for the joyful worship of praise in the congregation of the Lord. Third, in verses 6 through 8, is a call for the joyful worship of praise in the army of the Lord. And fourth, in verse 9, is a concluding shout of praise. Everything that God's people do in serving and glorifying the Lord must flow out of worship. Because without Him, as Jesus said, we can do nothing. The most important activity of the local church is the worship of God. That's why we're here, to worship God. Because this, acti- this is the activity that we will continue to do when we get to heaven for all eternity. And this is the basic instructions on worship that we need. The theme of the psalm is a victory celebration. We have the assurance that God really enjoys his people. The author of the psalm, anonymous. We don't know who it is. Now, when we're here worshiping God, we need to think about what it is we're doing. We're singing to God. We're not performing in front of an audience. But the kind of singing that comes from a person who's happy and their singing seems like a natural way to show that you're happy. And when you're happy, you usually show it by singing a song. You know, whether you might be at work or at home or wherever you might be and you're just in a good mood and happy and, you know, you're, you're singing a song. Or you're whistling a song or whatever it might be. You know, it also happens when a person sings with other people, like Christians do in church. And and it's sad to say that today not a lot of people sing. And that could be a sign of the unhappy times that we live in. One commentator said this, People used to sing in their homes as they gathered around the piano. Or they sang together in clubs. That probably doesn't happen very much today. Someone pointed out the possibility of, tra- of tracing the changing mood of our century by remembering that the soldiers of World War I sang as they marched to battle. The singing soldier was a, hero- a heroic figure. We see that even in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Let me read it to you. It says, after consulting the people... The king appointed singers to walk ahead of the army. Notice, singing to the Lord and praising him for his holy splendor. This is what they sang. Give thanks to the Lord. Is faithful. Uh, give, give thanks to the Lord for he is faithful. His love endures forever. At the very moment they began to sing and praise the Lord. He caused the armies of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. That is, you know, Israel's enemies. To start fighting among themselves. 
The armies of Moab and Ammon turned against their allies from Mount Seir and killed every one of them. After they had destroyed the army of Seir, they began to attack each other. So when the army of Judah arrived at the lookout point in the wilderness, all they saw were dead bodies lying on the ground as far as they could see. Not a single one of the enemy had escaped. Again, Second Chronicles 20, verses 21 through 24. Then the, the GIs of World War II, they weren't such a heroic figure. But it's, 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 it's stated that they were, they were wisecracking jokers, a lot of them. They had nicknames for their officers and made fun of them. And by the time the Vietnam War came around, the typical fighting man didn't sing or joke. A lot of in drugs. And I know when I was there, I saw it. There was a lot of drug use in Vietnam during that time. A lot of people listen to music, but they don't sing. About the only place people sing today is in church. Christians still sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it's a good thing we do because we're preserving something that's valuable. Something that's special. So let's begin with verse 1 of Psalm 149. And the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. So the psalm here encourages us to think about singing. And what it means for God's people. Sing. Sing is the first word after hallelujah. Which is, it means praise the Lord. Now, how? How are we supposed to praise God? The psalmist said, by singing a new song. A new song. These words encourage more than just singing a different song. A new song speaks of of a, a, a song, a, a, the call for freshness in our songs, a new quality in our songs, and integrity in performing music in the assembly of the saints. One of the main emphases in the book of Psalms is that praising God is to take place in the center of the worshiping community because praise belongs, or such that praise brings people together. And the reason we're called to sing is in verse 4. Notice what it says. Jump down to verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people and he will beautify the humble with salvation. Our singing is a response to that beautiful truth. We show a joy in God because he first took joy in us and he saved us from sin. Now look at verses 2 through 5. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. And he will beautify the humble with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. So in verses 2 through 5, the psalmist tells us about three truths that, that he enjoys. And causes him to praise the Lord. One of the the first truth is that he realizes God is is our creator. God is his creator. Verses 2, 4, and 5 refers to Israel as God's people. And verse 2 and 4, God's saints. So when Israel is told to to praise God as her maker, the idea is probably that God brought Israel into existence as a chosen spiritual nation. Chosen. 
by God. Not because they were more in number or, or they were special or any other particular thing. God chose them. God is our maker. He's our creator. And God has been praised as the creator of everything in earth and on earth. And no matter how we look at it, God has created us and we're indebted to him for everything that we are or that we can ever hope to be. The second thing that the psalmist says here about the truth that, he, that makes him uh, praise the Lord is God is our king. He's our king. And he's the king of the whole universe, including all nations and all people. Because the rulers of the earth won't recognize him as their king will be why he will bring judgment on them. The people of this world are not open to God's rule. They don't want God ruling their lives. They need to be taught that God is king even though they reject him. Teaching them that God is king. And God is the only way that, this is the only way that people can start to understand what sin is. Sin is rebellion against God and it will help them to to start to understand how serious sin is. But who are the, the people that should teach them that sin is rebellion to God? You and I. In other words, people who have accepted God's rule and praise him as king, which is what the psalmist does here. The third thing the psalmist says that causes him joy and and, and to praise God is that God is our savior. Not only is God our creator and king uh, who who all human beings rebel against, he's also our savior. He saves us from our rebellion. He punished our sin in Christ. And then he draws us to a holy fellowship with himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. So knowing these these three truths about God is the beginning of spiritual wisdom. And knowing them is more than enough reason for God's people to sing, I mean, at the top of their lungs. Victory songs are another way for God's people to worship him. And going all the way back to Moses... Moses and Miriam had a song after leaving Egypt and crossing the Red Sea. We see it in Exodus 15, 1 and 2. It says, Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. And they spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Also in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, Mary had a song of praise for being chosen to be the mother of Jesus. Listen to Mary's song. She said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Verse 6. He says, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. This is a prayer for victory. And you know what? They expect victory. 
As a matter of fact, they so expected victory and their prayer to be answered that as the warriors marched into battle, they did it with a song of praise. It says, in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hands. Praise in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hands. Now, the two-edged sword symbolized the completeness of judgment that would be carried out by the Messiah when he returns to punish evildoers. Now, let's look at verse 7. Just a second. Verse 7. It says, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. Verse 7, is, is, you know, he's talking about to punish the nations for their sins. The world pagan here means nations. It means heathen nations. The insinuation is no doubt, he's talking to those who had, you know, to, to, who had oppressed and injured the Hebrew people. Maybe referring to those who had destroyed the city and the temple at the time of the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> They were now to receive the punishment that was due them for the wrongs that they had done (coughs) to the nation. A just payback at God's hand by using the ones that they wronged, all right, to punish them. Look at verse 8. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. This means to make them prisoners and captives. And this is carrying out the idea in the previous verses of inflicting punishment on them for the wrongs that they had done to God's people. In other words, that is to subdue them, to make them captives in war, even those of high rank. And, and they, were often, they were often led in chains to grace the triumph of conquerors. When somebody, you know, a, a conqueror conquered a, a nation or a city or whoever it was, they would march those prisoners there as a sign of triumph. Of their conquering. The people of those lands who had waged war with the Hebrew nation, God would bring judgment upon them. This psalm is the spiritual warfare of the Christian life. Again, this psalm is the spiritual warfare of the Christian life. And our struggle, Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers. It's against the rulers of darkness of this age. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we will conquer. We will conquer. But the way we're going to do it is by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of testimony. Our testimony. So, the question is, are we singing new songs today? Do we have a new song for the Lord? Most of us have probably never written a song in our life. But, and again... uh, Never you know, written a song ever. But our experiences with God's grace should stir up in our hearts new songs of praise and thanksgiving. And again, new in the sense of fresh. A new quality with a new spirit. You know, not many times just singing them out of road. This is, you know, we've sang this before. And, you know, I know this song and we just, we just go through it. But with a newness, a freshness and a quality of spirit. Because we love God. We love His Word. We love worship. And praise should never get old and it should never get stale. Because every day, God's Word says it brings us new mercies. New experiences with God. New experiences of His grace and His power that calls for new songs. 
Now let's look at Psalm 150. Psalm 150. When you read and study the Psalms, and I shared this at the very beginning when we, when we started the book of Psalms, you come across Psalms of joy, Psalms of sorrow, Psalms of tears and trials, Psalms of pain and pleasures, songs of highs and lows. You know, just about every human emotion that one could experience, you find them in the book of Psalms. But the book of Psalms closes on the highest note of praise. Think of that. All of those emotions, all the way up to the last five chapters, where it closes on a high note of praise. It's like the book of Revelation that closes the New Testament. This final psalm says to God's people, don't worry. This is the way the story will end. And I love in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, we read, you know, it doesn't sound like such, such a good news. It says, the Lord God sent him, that is Adam, out of the Garden of Eden. The Lord had to kick Adam out of the Garden of Eden. But in Revelation twenty two seventeen, 17, we read, Jesus said, come. He said, come. What a great ending. We will all be praising the Lord. The word praise is used 13 times in this psalm, and 10 of those times we're commanded to praise Him. Each of the previous four books, Psalm 146, 147, 148, and 149, uh, uh, they end with a blessing. But the final book here ends with a whole psalm devoted to praise. And like the previous psalm, it gives us a review of some of the requirements of true worship. And the structure of Psalm 150 follows like this. First of all, in verse 1, we have a call for praise of God in heaven above. Second, in verse 2, we have a call for the praise of God for His great works. Third, in verses 3 through 5, we have a call for the praise of God with all instruments. And then fourth, in verse 6, we have a call for the praise of God from all creatures here below. The Psalm of 150... Uh, The theme of 150, Psalm 150, is a closing hymn of praise. God's creation praises Him everywhere and in every way. The author, anonymous, don't know who he is. Now, there are psalms of grief. And and we've gone through them. There are psalms of grief that call for, for heartbreaking sorrow by God's people. Then there are psalms that call for quiet meditation, quiet thinking about the wonderful works of God in history. Even though some of those works are sometimes confusing confusing, and even beyond our understanding. But here's the thing. There are times to celebrate as well. Like the time that David, when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem where he'd prepared a place for it. Remember they singled the arrival of the ark by blasting trumpets. And David danced, the Bible said, without a care in the world before God. And when the people praised God for the completion of the building of the walls of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, it says that the sound of trumpets and cymbals and harps and lyres and singing was so loud that the joy of the people, the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And, and, you know, it it tells us that that we need to stop giving worship that's, that's weak, And unexciting to God. 
If we can't sing loudly to the Lord and make a joyful noise, a joyful music to praise the God who's redeemed us in Christ, the one who's preparing us for heaven, maybe it's because we really don't know God or the gospel at all. But if we do know him, hallelujah, the psalmist says, praise the Lord. This last psalm in the book is obviously the the pinnacle. It's the climax of all of them. In Psalm 146, the psalmist praised God for his grace, his power, and his faithfulness to the needy. In Psalm 147, those living in Jerusalem, they are urged to praise God for bringing them back from captivity and blessing them and giving them security in the years after their captivity. Psalm 148 is a psalm for all creatures in heaven above and earth below. They're told to praise God as their creator and the redeemer of his people Israel. Psalm 149, the saints are invited to praise God because they're being, they've been saved from their enemies and they look forward to the blessings of the final judgment. Now in this last Psalm 150, every creature that has breath is encouraged to praise God everywhere and in every way that they can and to do it loudly. Now, where are we to praise the Lord? Verse 1 gives us the answer. In his sanctuary. Notice verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Again, where are we to praise the Lord? Verse 1 tells us, in his sanctuary and in his mighty firmament, which is the heavens. His sanctuary has been understood to mean the heavenly sanctuary or throne room. And the intent is for praise to come to God in his dwelling, where he dwells in heaven. To reach him in the heavens, which would make these two lines a very close match. That is, to praise him in the sanctuary and in his mighty mighty firmament. But the list of musical instruments in verses 3 through 5 lists some instruments that, that were used in the Jewish temple. And it suggests the sanctuary means that the earthly temple there. In other words, it's best to see verse 1 calling for the praise of God on earth in his sanctuary and in heaven literally in, the, in his firmament. In other words, we're being told to praise God everywhere. Today, we don't have an earthly sanctuary, though we worship God and we praise God in our churches. But we do have the bodies that Paul said are the temples of the living God. And we're told to praise God in and with our bodies, which means everywhere we go. The angels of God praise him everywhere they go. They praise God all the time. And we should do the same thing. Then the psalmist tells us why to praise God. Notice verse 2. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Notice that. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Now his mighty acts speak mostly about his works in creation. And salvation in history. Which some say would be creation Providence, that is the hand of God, and redemption. His excellent greatness speaks of his attributes, you know, who he is, his character, including qualities like his sovereignty, his holiness, his omniscience, his immutability, which means he never changes, his love, his grace, his goodness, his compassion, his justice, his truth, and his wisdom, and the list can go on. 
God is to be praised for who he is and what he's done. And these psalms have been encouraging us, have been encouraging us to get us to know him so that we can really praise him. Now, do you know God? Can you praise him for who he is and what he's done? And the only way you'll ever come to do it is, is by studying the word of God. And then the psalmist tells us how to praise God. After he tells us where to praise God in verse 2, in verses 3 through 5, half of the psalm tells us how God should be praised. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. And the psalmist says, Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with clashing cymbals. How should we praise him? With everything that you've got. If you have a trumpet, use it. If you have a lyre or a harp, a tambourine, a stringed instrument, a flute, cymbals, use them. No matter what you have, use them to praise God. Now, this list of instruments isn't like the official authorized list of instruments. That is, if you look at this list, these are the only ones that you can use to praise God. So they're not, it's not like it's an authorized list of instruments that you can use in church to praise the Lord. You know, it's like, it doesn't mean if you have a tuba, you, you couldn't use it to praise the Lord. All right, because it's not on the list. These instruments on the list could be the only ones known at that time. It could have been because we don't know all the instruments that they used and had back in that day. But here's the point. Everything that you have can be used to worship God. The trumpet was actually the shofar or ram's horn. And it makes an incredible noise and the noise would carry for a long way. Tambourines or timbrel, they were associated with dancing according to verse 4 because they were usually used by women when they danced. And verse 5 mentions two kinds of symbols. The first one mentions, mentioned is the loud symbol, which, you know, it was a small instrument and it possibly could have been something like castanets. The second type were clashing symbols. They were larger. So these instruments include all the, in, the musical instruments of the wind, string, and percussion family. The trumpets, they were blown by the priests. Harps and lyres, also called psalteries, they were played by the Levites. The tambourines, as I said, they were played by women and other people. So the call to praise God is directed to priests, Levites, and people, meaning everyone. It covered everybody. Everyone is to praise and worship God. Now, there are, and you may have experienced this, I I don't know how much so today, there are the two extremes when it comes to using certain kinds of instruments in the church. Now, there are some who forbid using instruments in worship because the Bible doesn't authorize them in this psalm. So, they have to stick closely to what the Bible allows. But again, you know, their thinking is that we don't have the right to do whatever we want. But this shouldn't divide Christians for those churches that do take this stand. We have to treat this like Paul did when questions came up about eating and observing the holidays. He said, let each be fully convinced in his own mind in Romans 14, 5. 
Let each person be fully convinced, fully, fully persuaded in their mind that what they're doing is for the Lord's sake. Plus, we should pursue the things which makes for peace and the things by which one may edify another, Paul said. Now, what about those who do use instruments for worship? Here's the question. How are those instruments used? That's the key. How are they used? You know, it's like a guitar player. You know, you you can see guitar players, man, they can really get into it. You know, if you come up here and doing worship and you're doing the uh, Chuck Berry thing across the stage, you know, I don't don't think that's going to go over too well. But if you're using the instrument and you're playing it to glorify God, and there's this the beautiful sound that's coming out of that guitar. That's, that's awesome. You know, the instruments, are they used for, for, for the right purpose? Are the instruments effective in directing our thoughts to God? Are we pointing to God in our use of our instruments? Are we drawing attention to ourselves? Do they focus our thoughts on who's playing or do they focus our thoughts on, upon God? And there are times when worship should be enthusiastic. But if worship is to be true worship, it must not be self-centered. It must not be about me. It has to be God-centered. It must involve the mind. It's not enough to come and do my own musical thing in church and call it praise. Worship should lift up the Lord and build up the saints. It should not puff up the participants. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 23, let all things be done for edification. Edification of who? Me? No. Edification for you. It's to build up the body of Christ. It's to build up the saints. If there's no message in the song, or the song doesn't line up with the word of God, then it has no place in worship. If the words that we sing don't express the doctrine that we believe, it's not a Christian song. Think about it. How can the Holy Spirit use and bless a song that ignores or contradicts what he wrote in the Bible? God will never contradict himself. He'll never say something to you different than what he's written in the scriptures. And I've heard that, oh, oh, God, you know, God told me this. And and, and yet, you know what? That's not what the Bible says. So whatever God spoke to you, it's not Jehovah God. You need to be careful. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that means you are controlled by the word of God. So what should be the evidence that you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Ephesians 5.19 says that the believer is joyful. Ephesians 5.20 says the believer is thankful. Ephesians 5.21 through 25 says that the believer is submissive. All right? So that's the evidence of a spirit-filled believer. Now, what's the evidence of the believer filled with the word of God? Well, Colossians 3.16 says he's joyful. Colossians 3.17 says he's thankful. Colossians 3, 18 through 19 says he's submissive. The same thing that the spirit-filled believer says is the same thing that the, that the believer is uh, with the word of God. No contradiction. You know, it, it, so, it, so it's hard to believe that a worshiper is filled with the Holy Spirit if their song is not filled with the word of God. 
God said the thing he promised to bless was his word, not my talents. He said, I will bless my word. If a song is biblically sound, it will have a Christian point, a Christian point of view on life. It will have a Christian view of the world. It won't just be a worldly song with a few biblical words or phrases put in there, here and there. But a biblical song presented in a way that communicates truth to believers in a lost world. The biblical message in the song has to be understandable. And it has to be presented in a way that it can be understood. The psalmist said in Psalm 47, 7, sing praises with understanding. To say that this is the way we do it, you know, is kind of a blanket excuse that, that lets anything happen. And then we say, oh, it was the Holy Spirit. Oh, it was the Holy Spirit. A lot of things, you know, take place in some churches and, and, it's, it's, and, and they're contrary to the Word of God and they blame it on the Holy Spirit. Oh, you know, I, I couldn't help myself. And I, no. The, Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't take over you and, and, and possess you in a way that, that will make you do uh, foolish things and things contrary to the Bible. The Holy Spirit can use the Word to instruct us if we are willing and it will use the Bible to instruct, he will use the Bible to instruct us to show us the better way. Variety is great, but balance must be there too. Val- variety and balance are important. Our worship ought to make the best use of all the wonderful things that God has given us. All things should be sanctified by the word of God and prayer and made suitable for the master's use. In closing, again, who should praise the Lord? Everybody and everything. It says, notice in verse 6, everything that has breath, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Everybody and everything. Everything that has breath should praise the Lord. And this is exactly what will happen according to the Bible one day. Right now, we see God insulted. We see him mocked. We see him rejected, denied, ignored, blasphemed. But one day, Paul said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or not, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything, one day, will praise the Lord. Father, we come before you and we thank you so much, God, for the time that we spent in these Amazing Psalms, Lord. Father, thank you for the lessons learned, and I pray that we would, Lord, refresh ourselves and go through the Psalms often, Lord, because they are filled with so much wisdom, Lord, so much, such depth and richness, God, of your word. And Father, we pray that you would bless your people, Lord, you continue to mature them and to help them grow, God. Lord, that we would be everything that you've called us to be, God. That, Lord, we wouldn't just be pew warmers, God. We'd be servants of the God most high. That, Lord, we would tell this world about, again, a God who saved us, a God who's loved us and cares for us, God. A God who, who meets all of our needs, God. Lord, we thank you, again, for being our God. We thank you for uh, Christ and, and his salvation. 
And Lord, we thank you that you came and you laid down your life for us, Lord. And so, Father, may you bless us now as we move on through the, through the word of God. And, and God, uh, may you teach us more rich and beautiful things, Lord. We thank you, Father. We praise you. We give you honor and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.